Брати изумрудны, идем дорогой трудной, идем дорогой трудной, дорогой непрямой. Заветны три желания, исполнит мудрый гудвин, и еле возвратиться с татошкою домой. Hey everyone, this is Jared Davis, welcome to the World Podcast of Oz, and today we're doing another issue of Movies of Oz with uh, Sam here. Hey Sam. Hi. What are we looking at today, Sam? Well, it's not exactly a movie, it's a TV series, a Russian TV series based on the Russian translations of the Oz books. There were 10 half-hour episodes that were in 1973 to 1974, and they were called The Wizard of the City of Emeralds. Or, in their original Russian, Volshebnik is a Monova Goroda. Now, you've actually read the English translation of the Russian books, haven't you? Alexander Volkov wrote six of these books altogether, and they've been released recently in collections of two. I only I have the first one and the last one, so I've read those two. So, the first two stories this series covers, I've read, but I haven't read the third one. Okay. So, having read them, you have a bit of a clearer idea of what the characters saying in the TV show than the, those of us who just watch it and haven't read those. Well, it's a bit of a looser adaptation, because um, Alexander Volkov's The Wizard of the Emerald City... It's very much a rewrite right of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by Alfred Baum. In fact, later he even uh, created Baum with the uh, original inspiration. But he did do his own twists. Um, and we'll get to some of them here, but let's just say for the main part, it follows the story of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Um, Dorothy is renamed Ellie. The Scarecrow is called Strasila, which I actually think is the Russian name for Scarecrow, but Mm-hmm. I believe it is. Yeah. The Tin Woodman has become the Iron Woodcutter, and the Cowardly Lion is still the Cowardly Lion. Uh, the Wizard is known as Goodwin. The Wicked Witch of the East is now named Gingima. The Good Witch of the North is named Velina. Galinda is now Stella. And the Wicked Witch of the West is Bastinda. Mm-hmm. So, basically, it's just some name changes and some extra... Um, situations in the story that take over or replace some of Baum's adventures. He wrote five sequels to his version of The Wizard of Oz, but unlike that one, they, they were not rewrites of the Oz stories, but he did use some elements from the Oz books in there, just mm. you gotta kind of look for them, but he did not uh, reuse plots again. No. Okay. So, shall we get into the series? Well, we might want to mention it's stop-motion animated first. I think I really like the stop-motion series. Like, it's a very labored process where you have to move um, each character's movements one frame at a time. But I really like it. I like the cute designs that the characters have where they're either tall and skinny or short and chubby or anything. But... Along the fourth episode or into the second adventure, you can tell or you can see that the puppets are a little bit worn and they're not as um, polished or good-looking as they were when they started. Well, the first episode takes up a majority of the story we know so well, Russian or whatever. One change that um, was made for the Magic Land series is that Ellie does not live with her aunt and uncle. She instead lives with her uh, mother and father. Hmm. It's but we only see the mother here, don't we? Yeah, they don't show the uncle, and and I guess they were kind of limited in what they could show. And I think it's more important to show the girl's relationship with the mother rather than both parents, you know, like the original book. The episode begins with a story being read to Ellie, something about... Magic and Wizards and Witches? Yes. In the original book, the translation I read, she's actually reading the story about Gingema to Ellie, and suddenly Ellie gets whisked pretty much into the story, you could say. So, when we see her mother 
pointing away, it's not like some little joke. She's actually saying that a magical land lies beyond the border of those mountains. That wasn't really what was implied in the original in Volkov's book that they, that they knew where it was. Oh no, but in the episode when she Yeah, calls. it could be. It could be if we knew what they were saying. Do you think that kind of blurs the div- contrast between the magic of the magic land or Oz and the civilization of Kansas, like some silent films have of Bond's books? It does kind of where in the original Oz books, it's not just some place you could get to by a boat or a train. You had to say that. Magic land is extremely different from Oz in the stories. It is definitely much less magical. But not too normal. I definitely think this has a more stylized and whimsical look than what Volkov actually imagined. Um, it starts with the tornado taking Ellie and Totoshka, who is now Toto in Russian, um, from Kansas, which has mountains, into the Magic Land. It's not called Oz in the Russian series. And the storm is conjured by Jinjima, the Witch of the East, who has the silver shoes, as we see. In the book, it was revealed that uh, what Gingama was trying to do was create the storm to wipe out all uh, other life on Earth except what would be of use to her. You can see in this one the Munchkins going to appeal to Velina, the good witch of the north, and she casts a spell that reverses it, so that picks up a house that should have been abandoned and it drops it on Gagema, thus ending her spell. We should point out how, unlike the other versions, and this is the only Russian version of the story that has a wagon instead of the house being transported to the magic land, episode one also includes... The girl and the dog meeting the scarecrow and the iron woodchopper, but it also includes a scenario before they meet the line in the next episode where Ellie gets captured by this giant ogre and her friend save her. Yes, he apparently wants to eat her, but they manage to save her, which is directly from Volkov's story and is one of his additions. Now, there's songs in this one. The ogre sings a song, but pretty much the best-known song is the same one that has the tune that opens and closes each episode. And I really like it. The first episode was titled Ellie in the Magic Land. So yeah. Um, Episode 2 is called The Yellow Brook Road. And it's in that one where they encounter the river before the county lion, who does save the scarecrow or Strachilia from the pole. Then they enter the poppy field, they enter a forest that has this giant saber-toothed tiger taking the place of the colliders. And yeah, so the second episode is more about the journey. The third episode has a majority in the Emerald City. Um, episode four is the Land of the West. And the fifth episode is the return to the Emerald City, as well as the return to home. Episode three is, of course, titled The Emerald City. Episode 4, The Kingdom of Bastinda. And episode 5, Exposing the Great and Terrible. Um, it's interesting to note how in this version, Ellie loses the shoes just before she's taken away by the tornado. We see it again in the in a later Russian film. And hmm. the Witch of the East, Jinjima, or however it's pronounced, she has a pet owl who we see much, much later in the series. And Toto, Totoshka actually fights him to get the silver shoes. Volkov really liked bringing back characters from the first story. I noticed this in the stories that he was very he very much intertwined them. For example, uh, the crow Kagi Car is actually the same one crow that told the scarecrow that he needed brains. Oh. Yeah, Kagi Car comes back in the second story that we'll get to in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um. This does. This is actually a pretty loose adaptation of Volkov's story, but we know that loose adaptation, Oz, these things tend to go hand in hand because people just like to go with their artistic spins. And you know what? Don't deny them. It still works. Like, it's still very faithful um, in its own right. It's very faithful. It's not too empty, but it manages to show a lot of the story. The original story discarded Bomb's original trip south and created a new one where 
the friends had to face a flood and they were separated and then had to make their way back and finally get, get down to Stella's. This one has the winged monkeys bring Stella to their old city where she tells Ellie how to use the silver shoes to get home. Although actually, now that you mention it, they're not ringed monkeys. They can fly, but they don't have wings. They tend to appear, fly across the sky. Yeah. This is the first adaptation of any of the ultimate films we've reviewed or seen where we see the yellow brick road happen. Like, Villina makes it magically appear. Although... That magic doesn't necessarily avoid a river or the poppy field. I really like it how when Ellie lands in the magic land and Jinjama is destroyed, the land of the east, which looked evil, dark, and creepy when she was alive, now changes to brighter, prettier when she's dead. And there's some lovely music that goes with the scene too. Yes, they really, really made this work for animation. And they did an amazing job. It, the first five episodes, anyways, are wonderful to watch, even if you don't know Russian, because you know the story anyway, so you just get to watch it and see all these funny things. You don't really need the dialogue to enjoy the story of the Wizard of Oz. You might catch one or two Russian words that sound very English, even when you haven't read the story, and if you just listen carefully, you can make out one or two things. But... Yes, it is a very artistic and beautiful retelling of the story. I really like how Lion has a blue mane in this version, which can only fit here. I guess it makes it very clear that he's a munchkin lion, which I guess doesn't fit with my story. Mm. Spoiler. <laughs> I really love how they handle the character of the wizard, uh, Goodwin. Mm. When they expose him, and he sings this really s- sweet song. Emotional? Really emotional song, and... You know, I put I put a clip of it on YouTube and I called it Goodwin Wants to Go Home Too. Mm. And you know, because exactly. that was how expressive they managed to make it where even if you don't know the language you can at least pick up on what's going on just by watching it. And that is a sign of really well done animation. And we all know that the wizard is a character with a circus background. And in this version for the MLC, they really add that to the City of Emeralds. The Emerald City takes on the personification of a circus both in the guards and the sets and even how when the friends see the wizard so it just adds to the illusion and the masquerade and you know the act and in episode five before he's revealed he's actually running around wearing a mask so it's really cool and i guess we should talk a little bit about uh, their take on bestinda the wicked to the west i was very surprised when i watched this dvd for the first time and saw her because she wasn't at all like what I expected. I like how Jinjima is portrayed, where she's a hag, very old, a crone with these ragged cloaks. But Bastinda, she's really different. She does have the pointy nose, the long chin, but she has these big spectacles. She's got this really long, skinny frame of a body. And, well, it's not really... A more, it's not a witchy costume you'd expect. It's really more like a, a strict, disciplinary school teacher, I suppose, with an umbrella. And she has a bit of a rock and roll song too later. Yeah, there are songs in every, in pretty much every episode. Sometimes even more than one. Mm. So it's a very musical thing, and I think this one's actually become just as much a, of a beloved classic in Russia as the MGM movie has over here in America. Mm, or all over the world. One thing I thought was interesting about Bessin is that in Volkov's book, it, it still very much follows the bomb story, but I liked that they had Ellie meet some of the servants who were not happy serving uh, Bastinda. But mm. that's done away with here, where um, there's a border guard who is a wolf, Mm. Who keeps the Winkies at work. Mm. He visitors out, the Winkies at work. And the way he acts is really funny, so you just have to see it yourself. Oh, yes, I really liked the wolf character. He's one of my favorites. Like, he brings to mind so much the sort of Wile E. Coyote or Chuck Jones or Looney Tunes characters, where he's an anthropomorphic wolf who can talk, he wears clothes, he has this gun... But he 
sometimes falls over. He's very cartoonish, and oh, I just would really, I really wish we could had English subtitles to go with the Russian language. Yeah, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but we can at least figure out from the animation what it's going on. The Winged Monkeys are finally called to take care of Ellie's friends, but almost immediately the Winkies help put the Strachia and the Iron Woodcutter back together. And they have a song then too, and it sounds so much like it fits at Christmas, I think. Like Stannis Elves working at a shop. To note how we only see two Winkies and two Munchkins in the series. I don't think they actually meant for them to be that many, but I'm also assuming they didn't have a huge budget to do a whole bunch of these puppets. Anyways, it would be a lot to work with anyway, so... Yeah. I think they just kind of scaled back on how many characters they had, but I think overall it works. Mm. What also really works are the little touches they do to Strasheela, the Scarecrow, and the Iron Woodchopper, because for a moment when Strasheela is taken down from the pole and his straw has fallen out he seems lifeless temporarily until ellie and totoshka put him back together with his feet sort of appearing magically by mistake and the iron woodchopper having a seemingly magic axe that when he makes one chop of the tree the tree becomes whatever it needs like a raft or a float or yes a cage and so that really helps move the story along a lot faster instead of waiting for him to chop a tree and, you know, take hours to assemble it. And, you know, well, it's a very stylistic approach. It, I think it really works for the medium they adapted it to. Even Strasheela's straw comes in handy at times where he takes it out of himself and uses, like, rope or something. Yeah. Um, Strasheela here is notably rather uh, fat-looking. As is illustrated in the books as well from Russia. When Ellie finds him, he doesn't have feet, but when she takes him down off the pole, he, some of them fall. Like you mentioned, uh, some of his straw falls out, and apparently he, when, he's t- when it's tied up, uh, she manages to make give him two feet to walk on. Mm. And he learns to walk, too. Wait, he doesn't walk straight away like, say, Ray Bolger or other silent films or whatever. He, he takes a few baby steps with help from Totoshka and Ellie, so... Oh, that's just so good for the character and the story. It works. It does. So it, it's really excellently done here. So if any of you American filmmakers are listening to this, take note. This would help a movie and the characters. This seems to be like this poppy spirit that attracts the friends in. This is one of the adaptations where the... Iron Woodchopper seems to get tired, you know, like he yawns. I don't agree with that. I thought the poppy spirit, whatever it is, that was really nicely done. It sings this really melodious song. Tempting. You said it's not quite right for the Iron Woodcutter to fall asleep as well, but on the other hand, I do like everything else they did, so I'm, I'll give them that one. Mm. You can get away with that because you did so good everywhere else, okay? <laughs> there is a bit of hand animation in this film. Like, they don't have a model for the tornadoes, so they just basically have the camera over the sets and do some rough animation for the tornado as if you were, like, a little kid and you did the swirly lines for the tornado rather than a full funnel. And there are some other little hand animations here and there, so you'd have to see for yourself. Because Totoshka can talk, he can also sometimes go on his hind legs a bit, and that makes a really fun scene with the guard in the Emerald City. And they have more than one guard here. Like, they have two different short guards, and they have three tall guards. It's a bit of a... It's a bit confusing how they never use the same guards more than once. Well, maybe we do see the guards after the Bastinta has been destroyed late on in the series, but they tend to change the guards' looks here more than once. The entire remote city actually seems to change between episodes three and five, including the Goodwin and the, uh, the guards. They suddenly seem to be different characters. Perhaps they, we are seeing them at different 
point of the old city, you know, like an east gate, a west gate, north or south gate, perhaps? Perhaps, that's a good observation. Mm. It doesn't explain why uh, Goodwin looks different in the two ones, though, because in episode three, you can see Goodwin painted up kind of like a clown, and he looks rather different than he does when they unmask him in episode five. And unless I'm mistaken, I think the wolf of the West also accidentally reveals Bastinda's weakness. I think that he might have. Let it slip. Mm. There's a really great set design in the fourth episode we see where the friends make the journey into the West. And the entire land of the West is this sandy desert, but not deadly. And we see the wolf guarding a door, like um, a wooden gate that has no walls, but is just set up along this white dotted line along the sand, along the ground. So it just really adds to the wolf's slight similarity to the Chuck Jones' Merry Melodies. There are literally borderlines. I guess we might as well mention that it was still called the Winky Country in this version. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they used it in there, but in the vocal of the story, they were still the Munchkins, they were still the Winkies, they were still the Emerald City. It had all the names, but the, he didn't have Quadling or Gillikin. He, he did switch up the color scheme a bit, but yeah. The other yes. two countries were just referred to by their color name. Purple Country and or whatever. Violet mm-hmm. Land... And yes, you will see the Munchkins blue in this version, but you won't see any yellow Winkies, because in the original Russian books, the Winkies are purple now instead of yellow. And maybe there's a tiny bit of purple in maybe the Winky Tinsmith's uniforms, but you definitely see a bit of purple in Bestinda's costume. Speaking of Bestinda, she has a very expressive voice there. Hmm. So if you thought the way she looked is surprising, you'd also be surprised at how she sounds, how she speaks, her voice. The best way we could describe it is, say, um, the Wicked Witch from the 1964 Rankin-based version movie. They do sound rather similar there. In that it's less witch-like and more tougher, so to speak. More like uh, trying to sound like a tough guy, but on the other hand, you know, it's a witch. We're not successfully saying that she sounds sort of masculine. There's a little bit of a twinge that sounds like it could be a man trying to do a woman's voice. So possibly. We don't know for sure, but it's definitely not the crackly, crone um, hag from Snow White or 1987 witch voice we're used to. Bastinda herself, while she is rather menacing, she's also pretty goofy. <laughs> yeah. She does act like a woman who's scared by a mouse when Totoshka is attacking her, like poking him with her umbrella or trying to keep him at bay. And as I mentioned, her little rock and roll song where she actually plays with this sort of strange guitar and having this sort of comical henchman who's sometimes useless to her. I should also mention how we see the golden cap here. It's not so much of a hat, but more of a golden crown with a huge, big ruby on top. But yes, it's a definitely different approach to the golden cap and the witch herself. So she looks surprising. She sounds male-ish. She's malevolent and goofy, so yeah, you get you have fun watching her. Just wait till you see how she gets melted is hilarious. Mm-hmm. I've always wondering how they pull off the wizard's appearances to their friends when they see him the first time. They do all go see him at once, but he does not appear the same way to all of them. But how, how exactly they pull this off I'll let you see that for yourself. Just keep in mind, this is a circus act, so that should give you a little clue. It's But because this is stop motion, how he handles it is 
so much more believable than, say, if it were live action. But it's still fun and mystical. When I was watching the the series just recently, I've only noticed like either two or three bloopers the entire time. Because this is stop motion, naturally the animators have to move the characters bit by bit. So sometimes when they're supposed to move just the characters, sometimes a bit of the sets or props can also move by accident as well. Yeah. That's one blooper. And one other blooper is near the end of episode two, when they've defeated the saber-toothed tiger, these little bunnies put up this sign with an exclamation point, like, danger to beware of the saber-toothed tiger. But this one's just a bit of um, a continuity or editing sort of blooper, where the sign appears in the scene before it's actually put up. Mm. So, considering that they've, I've only seen two or three bloopers across ten episodes, that's pretty good. Yeah. Not bad. And what did you think of Stella's look here? Because we all know Glinda is a tall, stately, beautiful, refined lady with red hair, blue eyes, and a white gown. And that's not at all how we get the Russian version of the character here, do we? It's like the two characters have been reversed, really, mm. when it comes to the look. Vilna looks much more like you'd expect uh, Glinda to look, and Stella looks a lot more like you might think the good urge of the north would look or princess langrida because stella doesn't really have a refined character um manner does she here because she's as you say the flying monkeys transport stella from wherever she was to the emerald city to help ellie and stella is not happy you can sort of make how she's saying who are you? What are you doing here? Get your hands off me! Release me at once! <laughs> yeah, she was not happy about that, but she definitely looks like a very dignified woman here. But that kind is... of a bit more one who cares a bit more about dress than actually about acting like a proper woman. She has feathers, long sleeves, puffy sleeves, a very lacy dress that you would see in either Mary Poppins or My Fair Lady... And maybe a bit of a powdered face. But yeah, it's a very surprising portrayal of the Witch of the South and West. It's still pretty good. We haven't commented about Ellie. Ellie's look mm. here. She has a bit of a sweater like or a jumper look with either shorts or a very short skirt. Yeah. And socks and shoes or slippers. The silver shoes... They take up Denslow's original illustration without the bows, so they have curled toes at the front. They're definitely very nice looking. I kind of wonder what happened to some of these puppets and props they had for the series. I bet if anyone still has them, they're probably pretty nicely priced collector's items. That's it for the first adventure that takes up the full first disc of five episodes onto the next one. Yes, this story is called Orphan Juice and His Wooden Soldiers. Um, the episode's title, titles are The Witch Can Give a Secret, The Old Sailor's Ship, and uh, Soldiers Gardeners. The story is compressed into three episodes. Now, um, the story is about a uh, woodcutter. No, not a woodcutter. He's called a joiner. A sort of toy maker? You could say that, yeah. Yeah, he was a follower of Gingema. He's a very sour character. Yeah. Very unpleasant. Some people think he may have been inspired by the Gnome King. Yeah, he does seem like a very human version of the Gnome King, without the magic, without the underground aspect and stuff. He has very much that selfish, grumpy, um, self-righteous idea to rule... Um, conquer everything, but he also has the uncanny resemblance to Snape from Harry Potter, Alan Rickman or not. That is something I haven't thought, I didn't think of until you mentioned it. Probably because I watched this before I watched Harry Potter, I didn't think, hey, that looks like Earth Juice. So naturally, if there was an English translation of this series, I think Alan would be the perfect choice to play Orphan. But... As you say, he's a follower of Jinjima, and 
Well, here we have the return of her wicked owl, who's a really nasty piece of work here. He's a major pest to the good characters. Irfan has taken possession of all of Gingama's old things, which I guess the owl came along with. One thing he has found is a powder of life. Now, in the original book, he actually made the powder from a plant he had, he'd found. But mm. in here, they've simplified it to where he's just found the he's apparently found the powder among uh, Gingama's things, and that causes a lot of trouble for the friends. Not at first, but he does assemble a small army of wooden soldiers, which also brings to life a bearskin rug. Because for the moment, he sees Gingama's box and he sees it and goes, "This is just dust." So in anger, he throws it on the bare skin and it comes to life so he sees the potential <laughs> he's like oh wait a minute i see what this does and when we we return to the emerald city and we see it it's much more occupied or populated than last time because this scarecrow ostrashila who is now king is looking after all these kids who is having a fun time sort of playing about on swings and all of this other playground stuff while this new God, who will only see this one time, is watching God over the gate. That's when Earthman comes with his army, and there's a funny scene where the wooden soldiers try to sort of make themselves into a ladder to sneak into the city, but Strashila uses the um, giant key, who we saw before, to knock the soldiers down, <laughs> and when and when that happens, I love just I just love how the soldier gives Trishila at the successful prevention of an attack. Yeah. But then night comes and, well, it doesn't go so well. Night comes and yes, they manage to conquer Trishila. Now was it Kagikar or the owl who goes to the iron woodcutter? The owl. The owl. And the owl, yes, and because it did that, it managed to, it managed to lure the iron woodcutter into a trap which gets him captured as well. And what they do is they manage to send Kagikar with a message to Ellie, because in this version the Magic Land is not like Oz. It's surrounded by mountains, which are in the middle of the Kansas prairies. Mm. That's one thing we forgot to mention before. How, um, as good as a story as Volkov wrote, he put mountains in Kansas, which is geologically it's, inaccurate. Yeah, it's not known for mountains. You cannot fit mountains in Kansas. You, you cannot fit that in Kansas without someone noticing it. Mm. Now, um, Ellie has a visitor, and it's her uncle Charlie Black, who's a sailor, and he has a ship on wheels with him, which is kind of like the sandboat from the road to Oz. So Yes. Here we, so, already in the story, we have the bearskin rug, the powder of life, and a Sandboat. So mm. that's three touches from the Oz books already, but the plot is completely original, except for the mm. fact that um, people have done Oz gets conquered lots of times. Yeah. You could kind it's, of see Earth and Juice a bit like Ginger here, except for the outcome. The yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very loose version of the Marvelous Land of Oz. Very, very loose. Like five out of a hundred. I just and... realized that this actually bears a bit of resemblance to Journey Back to Oz. Oh? Because of a magic worker using witch things to to create an army to conquer the Scarecrow. Hmm, true. Very true. And I only just, when I was watching it recently, I thought how, what did you say his name was? Uh, Charlie Black. Charlie Black, yes, thank you. I thought that he was a, maybe a mix between Uncle Henry and... Captain Bill. Well, maybe maybe more of the later one, but... We can tell that Volker was at least familiar and was not above borrowing from the original series, but he still created his own plot. Now, um, this is about all of episode one here, of the yes. three episodes that make up the story. Most of episode one has a flashback scenario that shows how the Magic Land or the Emerald City is conquered and how... Strashila and the Iron Wood Chopper need Ellie's help and send her a message. 
I was a little interested by um, how the new developments for Dorothy of Oz have gone because it sounds very much like this is a similar opening that they'll be doing in that movie where they send for Dorothy to help them. Um, and of course, it's too early to tell, but the timing is different here and much better done. And we see Totoshka join in the Return to the Magic Land as well, yeah. which doesn't happen until episode two. Yeah. While they're crossing the desert, they get caught on a big black rock that Gengema apparently uh, enchanted to keep intruders away from the Munchkin country from this side. Oh, so that's what it is. Yes. And uh, in the book, they get caught there for a long time, and they almost die there before they're finally aided. Kagi manages to go to... Velina, who manages to give them some aid so they can finally escape the big black rocks. And she actually has a location that's different from the very first episode, isn't it? Well, maybe she's it's more stylized. When I watched it recently, like I said, I thought Ellie looked a bit different. Maybe a bit older or something? Well, yeah, maybe they wanted to give her the impression that Ellie was getting older because in the original stories, only the first... Three of Volkov's stories dealt with Ellie. The rest of them had her sister Anna going to the Magic Land. So episode one has the conquest, and episode two has Ellie and her companions rescuing her friends. And episode three has them taking back the Emerald City and temporarily defeating Ufundus. Well, they don't exactly defeat him. They put him on. They manage to put him on the run, which gets him out of the way. Um, they managed to do this by, after a little barrage of cannons, the Iron Woodcutter manages to shape the uh, soldiers into more agreeable fellows, and they start to, and they become gardeners. The names of the wooden soldiers, though, are the Deadwood Oaks, and they came back in the later stories as uh, actual soldiers who could help out, so that was another example of how Volkov didn't just introduce new things. He would like to make his use of pretty much everything that already been established in this country as possible. He would develop the characters and help the story, so to speak. Yeah. Like, just um, make callbacks to the previous adventures and develop it further. Yeah, I can, I'm kind of loath to say he's better than Bomb, but he was... He was better than Bomb in that respect, I guess. Mm-hmm. We're not. You're not. You're not saying that Volkov is perfect, like much more better. No, you're not saying that. You're just saying that, in some aspects, he's better than Bomb in certain areas of yeah. the story. The thing is, though, that where Bomb has him beat is that because of his track, tracking back and going over all this, you get really bogged down in continuity. Whereas Bomb, you can almost just pick up any story out of context and manage to read it with and enjoy it fairly well. And I guess I better get back on top because we're talking about the adaptation, not the original books. So we're now onto the final two episodes, which continues the troublesome mischief of Urfan. Only now we have some very loose um, underground Oz adventures that kind of brings to mind Dorothy and the Wizard and Oz and maybe TikTok of Oz, but with a tiny bit of the Emerald City. It's called Seven Underground Kings. When I was watching it this time, I thought a little bit of Don't Todd of Maryland, because, well, there's a scene where how Ellie gets to the underground land, which is part of Magic Land, is that uh, she and her friend and Totoshka are in a boat, and it takes them underground, which is very much what happens in... Don't to Maryland to take them to Maryland. Oh. Orphan has stayed on the run, so to speak. Yeah. Like he keeps getting away from the friends, although at first it looks like the Iron Woodchopper is looking in on a dungeon and Orphan is just oh, I don't know, just avoiding being seen or caught. Now this is the one story I haven't read, so I'm not really sure what exactly what Orphan does here. Ellie and her friend go and manage and find the Palace of the Seven Underground Kings, which has a caretaker. 
apparently the underground managed to have too many kings and eventually what happens is I guess Irfan causes trouble which causes great unrest there. Some of them start acting foolishly and frankly nothing is really being accomplished in underground land. In episode two well episode two would be episode of the story would be episode ten of the entire series. Mm. Yeah, the two episodes are called The Mysterious Cave and Ellie and her friends reunited. Ellie's friends arrive, and they manage to use the well of the sulfuric waters, which is the same as the water of oblivion from the Emerald City of Oz. What it does is it wipes their memory for a short time, and during this time, they can be reformed pretty easily. Yeah, it's a bit hard to say what happens in these last two episodes, because the... The second disc doesn't have as much substance in the adventure than the first one does. Yeah, with Earth and Juice, you can at least look and try to follow the story a bit. But in this one, it's much more condensed, and it just it just didn't really work that well. In the original book, uh, Ellie is told by the Queen of the Field Mice, who didn't appear in this one, that she would not be returning to the Magic Land which would end these three stories, which makes up her trilogy. Did she not return because she was getting older? I haven't read it. I've only heard that the, that the Queen of the Field Mice tells her that she won't be coming back. I wonder how it came to be like that, or if there was some sort of rule or regulation about that. Because if there is something like that, it brings to mind that Narnia bit, doesn't it, where the Pevensey children are told almost one at a time, that they are getting too old. Uh, I'm not really sure. Now, these were written after the Narnia books, so that is a possibility. But, yeah, that's something we never get in the English side of the world. So, so because we haven't actually read the full stories, we're still lacking in understanding of it. Yeah, so, I, I can tell it's very beautifully done. There's some more really good songs here. What happens here in the story is that the seven kings go from being kings, and after they drink the water, they become laborers. Yep. So that's kind of a way of abolishing government and making and equalizing everyone, which is a very rather communist idea, which some people aren't really comfortable with. But on the other hand, you got to realize their kingdom was not working. This was a situation they needed to resolve, and this is one way to do it. They didn't have any subjects. It doesn't show any. There. I believe the books had some, so... In fact, there's only one guy in the TV episodes who we actually do see serving the kings, and he brings to mind the wizard, both the Russian version and the Elfingbaum fourth book. Maybe it's Goodwin in disguise, somehow. I don't think so, but yeah, he did look an awful lot like Goodwin. However, the actual book, The Wizard of the Emerald City, uh, reveals, like, on the very last page that Ellie meets Goodwin back in Kansas, so... I don't think it's supposed to be him, but it does almost look like they reused some of the Goodwin puppet to make this character. Sorry we couldn't exactly give you guys a better plot description of Seven Underground Kings. I thought how there was a lack of substance to the second and third adventures compared to the satisfying... First adventure, you know? Just like The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was written as a single standalone story, The Wizard of the Old City also was written that way as well. It was revised, and then they started adding sequels. And the thing is, is that the way Volkov wrote is that it was very much con- a continuation. So when they broke it down like this, I guess it really did begin to feel less of a, like less of a stronger story on its own. Like I mentioned, it he really gets wrapped up in continuity so much, whereas Bomb, you can just jump in and start reading wherever you want. It is a shame because when I first watched the series on DVD and I got to the end of the last episode, like the 10th, I did feel a little bit disappointed or let down, you know, because with some series you can either finish on a high note and everybody loves it, or you can finish on a sort of low note and you're just sort of disappointed so yeah that's kind of what happened here i was a little bit less than satisfied often just 
was sort of reformed, I suppose, so that, I suppose, stops him from making more trouble and being a pest, but... Oh, he returned uh, later books, and uh, in the next story, he would return as a villain, and that was when he would really... That was when they really changed up his character. It's a bit of a shame how the series ended. It it wasn't bad, um, our viewers. It wasn't too bad, but it was just lacking something. Yeah. Maybe our enjoyment of it would have been better if we could at least understand the language, but, you know... It was made for a Russian audience, so we can't exactly blame the producers for that. No. There's actually a, one bit of music that, during the se- first episode of The Seven Underground Kings, where there's this clock, like a sort of time motive, in the final two episodes, and the music reflects that, that sort of tick-tock, tick-tock tune, and it sounds almost exactly like the Super Bowl TV spot for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. That actually was a really nicely done bit of music there, very foreboding. Maybe I th- maybe the Underground Kings were supposed to be under uh, asleep for a certain amount of time, and this was when they woke up because of the clock, but I'm not sure. Someday we'll know, maybe. I'm, but... I'm planning on getting the... The other book in the series, so I'll maybe I'll maybe later I'll be like, oh, this is what was going on. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we did mention that the first one was loose translation, and the second one was also kind of loose. Very loose, like very condensed. Maybe I'll at least be able to understand what they were trying to redo. Right now, I don't. I plan to do a series of blogs about the original Russian books when I finally have them all, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see about that when we get to it. I look forward to reading them. Do we want to talk about how you can find the series, how you can see the series right now? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Well, we have the series on DVDs. You can get them from either Amazon.com or eBay, but you can also get them on files. They're on DVD... There's a big difference between the quality of the picture. Like on DVD, it's okay. But when you look at files from another site, which um, hopefully you, Jared, will include in your podcast description, like as a link, the picture is much better there. The lines are sharper. The colors are cleaner. Um, though I don't remember seeing any scratches or specks or hairs or anything there. Um, There is a slight crop or cut to the image on the right-hand top, perhaps. But overall, the picture is easier to look at on the files than, say, the DVD discs. I think what happened was the version we have on DVD is uh, the one that had me going around. And then they did a remastered one. This is what these files came from. Now, you can find these files on archive.org, and it's kind of hard to exactly tell you how to find them. Pretty much, you'd have to, there's collections of Russian animated shorts. However, you can also see them on YouTube, and I've set up a playlist. What you can do is you can go to the Royal Blog of Oz, and for the blogs for October 2012, you can go to the blog for October 5th called Marathon Weekend. I have a player set up with a complete playlist of the series from uh, YouTube uploads that looks like it's from an official Swiss. Or you can go to a playlist and select which episodes you want to see from there. So there's three ways to see it, and I'll try to put links in the podcast description. So with those options, you can decide for yourself which is the best way to watch when you want. So pretty much, yes, you have the full and actually legal option of watching it for free before you decide if you want to track down a DVD. Which, yeah, that's pretty nice. And overall, I would suggest that you add this one to your collection because it's just so nicely animated. It's definitely much more real than CG animation because you can't touch computer-generated imagery, but you can look at the detail of puppets and models and there's just a better appreciation for that kind of art than computer ones. I really wish that this would be 
re-released on DVD with the new restored footage and with English subtitles. That would be a really great release. Yeah, that that would be nice, but you know, on it, until someone decides to reach out to the to cater to the Russian uh, to the fans of this, I don't really, I don't really see it happening too soon. Still, we can mention it that we have some interest in that. I've enjoyed the series, like watching this one, and I look forward to talking about the other Russian versions later. And um, right now, I'm taking a look at eBay. You can find copies of it for as low as $20. Amazon doesn't have any available right now. Although one time they did have a DVD where the cover art used images from the book rather than the show itself. It's been at least on DVD several times, it seems. Different covers? There was one I tried to order once I really got burned on where it used uh, a cover with art from the later animated version so well we hope you've enjoyed listening to us and we hope that this has well made you interested in getting the series and seeing them for yourself if you want to read the books for yourself you can find the english translations on amazon and lulu.com they were nicely done by uh peter blystone uh they're called tales of the magic land and they're in three volumes without the illustrations though it's a nice little gateway to this very interesting Russian version of Oz. So thanks for listening to the Royal Podcast of Oz, everyone, and we will see you in the next one. Bye.